Welcome to the Top 3 by E3 Consulting, a monthly podcast about the intersection between engineering, energy, and project finance. E3 is a firm of technical advisors who provide independent and owner's engineering services to capital providers, project developers, and other stakeholders. One of our goals is to ensure that projects are bankable, meaning that they are both technologically and commercially feasible projects, allowing them to obtain funding for development. This gives us a front row seat to the so-called brave new energy world. In addition, we've chosen a field that allows us to be lifelong learners, and we enjoy sharing what we have learned and educating our clients. In each episode, we'll explore the top three takeaways about a particular topic, examples being hydrogen, wind power, energy storage, or simply market trends. We hope you can join us, and we would love to hear your questions and suggestions for upcoming episodes. Write to us at e3co at e3co.com. Today, we're talking with Paul Plath, president of E3 and one of E3's co-founders. And Paul and I are going to address some frequently asked questions about the independent engineering or IE space. For example, what is an IE? When should you engage an IE? How does an IE add value? So let's get started. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks, Ginger. It's great to be here today. Why don't I kick us off with an easy one? I know E3 just celebrated its 22nd anniversary on March 1st, but how long have you been in the IE business? You know, I've been doing this sort of thing for about 35 years now. I, I started out uh, almost 40 years ago um, in the utility business working for a large investor-owned utility, but after a couple of years, uh, got my first job in the consulting business doing independent engineering work. So yeah, we're going on close to 35, 36 years now doing this sort of thing. Wow, that is um, certainly highly experienced, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> as, as my gray hair will attest to. Right, right. Um, so what exactly is an IE and what does one do? Yeah, so as the name implies, an independent engineer is a, an independent technical consultant that's usually hired by a financial party that's uh, participating in some sort of a, an energy project, whether it's a power plant or a pipeline or other related infrastructure. The reason that someone might hire an independent engineer is to really assist with the due diligence process uh, that you would go through in, in any major investment in a capital project. Um, and due diligence means basically checking the facts. Um, and our role in, in that process is to look at the technology that's involved, understand how the project has been put together uh, to make sure all the pieces are there and everything fits together. Uh, whether it's on technology, permitting, how it's physically going to be built, uh, the contracts surrounding the construction of the facility, as well as the supply of fuels or offtakes of the products, uh, and, and the other commercial uh, arrangements that are necessary to build and operate um, any sort of a complex energy or industrial facility. So that's that's basically it. We're there to assist someone with sort of a normal due diligence process on a uh, a large energy project. Right. So you know, so you mentioned um, you know providing an independent perspective, which is really important for these capital intensive projects. But you know, what else? How how do you believe that an IE really provides value to a project? Well. One of the key features there is the is the word independent. We're not uh, we don't have a stake in the project itself, so we are free free to criticize where we think it's necessary. If we find that there are gaps in the project that uh, are potentially uh, risky or could could cost uh, one of the participants a lot of money or time, um, we don't have uh, relationships with the contractors or the equipment suppliers, uh, so we can be uh, completely. 
uh, open and objective about our opinions. I mean, that's really the key there is that, that we are a third party. We're coming in from the outside. And the idea is that we can be you know, completely objective in our opinions uh, and also apply our experience um, and having been through really hundreds of, of different projects, we kind of understand uh, where mistakes tend to get made in the, in the business. And we look for those mistakes and try to guide the parties through areas that are uh, typically risky or where mistakes have been made in the past. Yeah. And I think one else, one other thing I would add is that, you know, along the lines of risk is, um, you know, we can, you know, using our experience, identify, you know, how risky is this really? Like, how often do we really see an impact from some of these risk areas? And then we can also offer some risk mitigation, um, you know, ideas as well, if, you know, if that's uh, beneficial to the client uh, based on the project. Yeah, exactly. So part of what we do is every project will have risks. There's, there's no way that you can mitigate everything, uh, at least not uh, economically. But part of our job is to sort through those risks and separate the mountains from the molehills and try to put some brackets around it. Is it really a risk that is likely to happen? And if so, is it uh, likely to be costly in terms of either money or schedule or, or performance impact? So yeah, everything, every project has risks, but we're really uh, most interested in the ones that could potentially have a significant impact and are have, have a likelihood of occurring. You know, one other thing, Paul, that I would add as well is, you know, um, you know, E3 does development support too. And so, you know, kind of back to your comment on, um, you know, utilizing our experience, you know, we see so many of these projects, whereas a, a developer will see one or two, right? So um, we can use that experience to help, um, you know, clients put together, right, you know, what's financeable, what's, you know, acceptable in the market right now, what are typical market terms and kind of help uh, developers in that way as well. I mean, that's a a little bit different from, you know, a little bit of a departure from the typical IE services, but, you know, development support um, is also something that I think sees a lot of benefit from our experience. Yeah, exactly. And and, and we, we do quite a few of those assignments where we're getting hired by a developer or sponsor to, to come in earlier than we normally would as an IE and just help them look for things uh, that, that maybe are potentially risky, uh, that they should spend some time uh, you know, tightening up terms of agreements, uh, but as also, as you mentioned, just giving you the information that would allow them to proceed with uh, commercial negotiations, understanding better what the typical terms and conditions are, what, what things they can ask for, what things are likely to get pushback on, you know, from vendors and contractors. You know, Paul, uh, so to, to uh, something you just said, what is the kind of the best time to get an IE involved in a project? I mean, what's that best timing, do you think? Yeah, cer- certainly um, there is too late and there is too early. Uh, you know, ideally, uh, you know, uh, I'll start with the too late. That's when, you know, really the project is, is fully baked and ready for construction because if all the if all the contracts have been signed, um, everything is ready to go, then if we do find issues or if um, a lender or equity participant has issues with the, with the contracts as they've been uh, signed, uh, then it can be a costly and t- time consuming to unwind some of those things and to make changes at the last minute. Or if, if something has just simply been missed and you have to go back and negotiate uh, changes to the contracts, um, 
sort of at uh, at the last minute, then that is uh, obviously a time-consuming and costly event. So, you know, generally we like to get involved just as, you know, the primary contracts um, are in final stage, you know, almost ready to sign, that sort of thing, just before you'd have the final legal sign-offs and the sign-offs from the lenders and, of course, the IE. Um, on the flip side, too early is before you've made the key decisions about who your uh, vendors are going to be, who the contractors are going to be, who your O&M providers are going to be when all the documents are essentially in their uh, initial form. Because at that point, we really just don't have enough information to provide you know, useful opinions. And if we're going to be looking at reviewing multiple, multiple drafts of agreements or permits aren't finalized, whatever the case may be, then, then our, our services really aren't uh, as valuable at that time. And we'll be spending a lot of extra uh, time and money that uh, it would be better spent later on in the project. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. What industries typically need an IE? Well, really, it, any project that is re- going to require external funding, either through finding outside equity sources uh, or outside lending sources. Uh, it's probably easier to answer which industries do not. I mean, typically, uh, industries like uh, oil and gas exploration, uh, refining, those those kinds of areas, those are generally, all large capital projects are generally funded in-house through corporate funding. Uh, they don't usually go out to the project finance markets or seek uh, third-party equity participation. So generally, they're making all their own decisions and doing all their own uh, internal due diligence for those kinds of projects. Where IEs are needed are, are those cases where you are going to the project finance markets or equity, you know, third-party equity, tax equity, um, venture capital markets where um Generally, those investors are going to require some sort of a, a rather formal due diligence process. And that covers, you know, that's not just in the energy industry. It's infrastructure, water pipelines, waste treatment, large industrial projects, ports, roads, dams, bridges, all that sort of thing where, where there might be a project finance used or third-party equity. Okay. Okay. What are the key risks that an IE usually focuses on? Well, generally, they fall into three or four categories. One is technology. And technology is not always uh, a large issue, but certainly is something that everybody is uh, is normally concerned about, at least initially. You know, will the, the primary concern is, is the technology commercially proven? Uh, do the vendors have good experience with a particular technology for the application. You know, we've seen this particularly in the rapidly developing uh, parts of the uh, electric energy sector, such as renewables. Wind turbine technology is, is, for example, has advanced very rapidly over the past decade. There are new models coming out every year from the major vendors uh, with, with upgrades and changes and modifications. Uh, similarly, on the solar side and now with with uh, battery energy storage technology. Uh, so there are concerns about whether the technologies that are, are being um, utilized for a particular project are really proven and do is a really good understanding of what the, the potential issues may be or downsides with a, with a particular technology. Now, that's less an issue with the more 
established thermal technologies that have been out there for for decades, like gas turbines. But but even then, you know, those technologies are continuing to advance, and and we have to keep up with those changes and and why those changes are being made. Um, you know, beyond technology, we'll look at all the other sort of key project development issues, uh, primarily permitting. Interconnections, whether it's interconnecting to the electrical grid or to a pipeline system or to transportation systems, uh, we'll be looking at capital costs, uh, verifying the capital cost estimates are based on reasonable assumptions and, and, and uh, good bid data from vendors and contractors. The construction schedule, again, to verify it's reasonable and the durations make sense uh, and they'll allow for, you know, the usual um uh, delay issues that will occur during the construction of a project. Um, the commercial arrangements for construction contracts, operating contracts, maintenance agreements with vendors, that sort of thing. And then, and then finally, it all uh, boils down to the financial projections. It really, the IE business comes down to being able to verify what's in the, the financial models from the perspective of CapEx and OpEx costs, as well as performance projections, reliability, long-term maintenance costs, and the, the useful life of a facility. Yeah, and something else, you know, kind of along the lines of risk mitigation and the financial model, you know, looking at when we look at technologies um, that maybe are um, newer, uh, you know, that's a place in the model where you might consider risk mitigation, right? So you might include some additional operating costs or, um, you know, in, in thinking about construction, you know, look at schedule and time and, you know, maybe it'll take a little bit longer to commission these units or, you know, with some learning curves. So I think those are also places where we um, think about risk mitigation, but, you know, all of it boiling down to the financial model and how all the parts kind of play into that model. Um, and are there opportunities to, you know, mitigate risk there as well? Yeah, that's right. Whether the risk mitigation is through additional uh, contingency funds for construction or operations, whether it's through uh, some contingency in the schedule, you know, uh, allowing yourself time to be late if necessary or to, to delay the construction of a project if for some reason that, that makes sense. Um, you know, as well as just understanding the, the overall resilience of the project to uh, changes in assumptions that, that may occur along the way. Right, right. Well, so, uh, Paul, when project, I mean, you've, you've seen a few projects over your, um, you know, span as an IE here. When projects do get into trouble, I mean, what is, uh, what are some of the most common reasons? Is there a, a trend? You know, it's, it's usually something uh, unexpected or a change in sort of a larger macro market situation that, that wasn't expected. You know, honestly, in the probably 300 projects I've looked at, technology has only been a cause of project failure in a few instances where the thing just didn't work and couldn't be fixed. Generally, technology issues can be overcome. It may take some time and money, but generally they can be overcome eventually. Um, the things that are more difficult to, to overcome are fundamental shifts in the market that were unanticipated. Examples of that are, are sort of, uh, you know, deal changers that we've seen in the, in the U.S. market, like the development of fracking and horizontal directional drilling that suddenly made natural gas very plentiful and, and cheap. And that was something that nobody really saw coming until it happened. And, and so that was a fundamental change in the market that 
suddenly made you know existing coal-fired power plants uh, uneconomic in most parts of the country. So a basic fundamental change like that, or you know the uh, rapid uh, decline in the price of solar and wind uh, capacity, which uh, uh, again had never really happened before in the power and energy markets where a technology came in that got year after year cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to build. Uh, so that had a significant impact. You look at restructuring of markets um, in certain areas, uh, like in, in ERCOT, where the decision was made to to deregulate and, and go to a, um, a fully retail market. Well, that changed underlying economics of, of particularly existing uh, power and energy facilities and those kind of markets. And so it's generally those large macro uh, impacts that are 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 really unforeseeable that cause issues. And certainly this year was was uh, no exception with with COVID. Uh, nobody saw that coming, and that had you know significant impacts in some cases on on both projects under construction and on the market overall, where we saw you know large decline in uh, demand for electricity and natural gas and liquid fuels, and resulting declines in prices, which obviously was not something that more than a year ago anybody saw coming. So those are usually the issues that end up causing the most uh, distress to projects. Yeah, those are really good points, Paul. And so, you know, how can an IE help to turn around a, a distressed project? Is there, is there is there a part to play for us? The key thing with looking at any facility is its future adaptability, because the only thing we really know for sure is that things will change. And so with any large capital project, you want to make sure that uh, even though you, you think you understand the business case very well um, today, <clears throat> we do know that at some point that's going to change. And so will the project, will that physical facility be able to adapt at some time in the future? Can you modify that technology? Can you modify the operations of the facility to make it work better uh, under a changed uh, operating regime or changed market regime in the future. You know, that's uh, obsolescence is, is a big issue with technology evolving so quickly that you want to make sure that your, your projects are able to either uh, incorporate or adapt in the future. You know, good examples are, you know, large gas-fired plants that were built 20 years ago, uh, fully expecting to be base-loaded units. Uh, for the rest of their lives, and now they're operating in uh, as intermediate or even almost peaking capacity. So, were they were they able to adapt to that change? What needed to be done to make them adaptable to the change? You know, examples we're looking at today um, with with newer technology like battery energy storage systems. Uh, we know battery technology is advancing quickly. So, can a project that you build today with today's technology be adaptable? or essentially able to repower five or 10 years down the road with the latest battery technology that may have better performance characteristics than what you can buy today. So that's really what we, is is the facility, is the project uh, flexible enough that it can likely adapt to changes in the market going forward versus being so dialed in to a specific use case or operating case that'll be obsolete um, if there's a significant change in the market. Yeah, I also think about um, 
you know, combustion turbines that can also burn hydrogen, uh, you know, up to 100% hydrogen. I mean, we're, we're starting to see that, right, um, as, a, uh, as a plan for the future as well. So I, I think that's all really interesting. Yeah, adaptability to alternative fuels in the future. You mentioned hydrogen, you know, uh, renewable natural gas, uh, uh, renewable diesel, all these, all these different and greener fuels that are coming up. Part of that is part of what we looked at is, is can the technology, if they're using those kind of fuels today, be able to adapt to future, you know, greener synthetic fuels in the, in the future? Yeah, Paul, last question. Uh, so you know, you've been doing this for a while, as we've maybe mentioned once or twice now. Uh, so, uh, you know, how has the IE business evolved? I mean, I've, I've been here for 14 years at E3 and it's, you know, it's evolved in my, you know, short 14 years, but what, uh, what have you seen? Yeah, generally when I started in this business, particularly 30 years ago, most of our work was very technology focused. That was really the key issue that we were hired to look at, you know, 30 years ago and up to 20 years ago and even 15 years ago, most everything we got involved with power projects had had long-term power purchase agreements. So the, the revenue side of the projects was really much more certain and, and almost fixed and was uh, not considered the risky part of the operation. Uh, everybody was more focused on the efficacy of the technology, the construction costs, operating costs, um, uh, long-term useful life assumptions. So we were really focused on just technology and construction and how well is the, the facility going to operate. You know, since then, really, the focus has really shifted more towards the market side, uh, being able to understand how the markets are evolving, uh, how pricing may evolve uh, in the future, how access to fuels or feedstocks may change. Um as well as commercial terms uh, for equipment and construction and, and operations. So um, our scope is, is really broadened beyond just looking at technology to, to really being able to help our clients assess how these projects fit into the markets both today and, and perhaps in the future, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the future. Uh, so it's, it's become a kind of a, a wider uh, view of, of, macroeconomics in the, the energy sector or the other uh, industries that we're looking at. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, you know, Paul, this is the top three by E3 podcast. So what three takeaways would you want our listeners to walk away with here today? Well, I, I'm going to kind of go back to a couple of things we already hit on. One is, is timing is important. Um, as I said, with IE work, um, you can we can be brought in too soon or too late, and uh, time generally is money, as the old saying goes. If we if we come in too late, and we find issues, or our the, the lenders or investors that we're working for find issues, then it it's very expensive at the last minute to be making changes. So bring us in early enough that uh, changes can be made uh, before they're they're really chiseled in granite and, and become very difficult to, to modify. Uh, vice versa, if we brought in too early, uh, then there's just too many open questions to be dealt with at that point, and our, our work becomes very efficient. So what we suggest is how do you find the right, the, the right time is to talk to us. 
start talking to us early and then we can help you assess uh, when it would be the right time to really get started, you know, based upon uh, where you are, uh, where a sponsor or developer is in the uh, development process. And we can try to pick what would be the appropriate time to really get involved um, in a project. Uh, so that's the one point. Timing matters. IEs uh, do cost money. I mean, we don't we don't work for free, but generally, uh, I, I think we can demonstrate pretty well from our past history that ultimately we can help you save a lot of money uh, in your project. Uh, we can help you find risks and gaps in the project early on when it's still relatively easy to fix or cheap to fix those problems before they become really embedded in your project and then and then hard to change later on. And then also, I, I think uh, kind of the third point is you should look at an IE as really one of your partners in a project. Uh, we're there to help project developers and sponsors and our, our investor and lender clients to be successful too. That's what we want. We want to be associated with successful projects. And so we're trying to help you become successful by uh, looking for issues and mitigating those issues up front and, and helping you navigate through the sometimes very long and, and torturous process of getting projects financed. So um, you should be looking to us as a partner and, and, and trying to take advantage of our you know, many years of experience at looking at hundreds of different projects to, to help avoid some of the pitfalls and problems that we've seen before. So we, can, uh, we think we can add significant value uh, uh, to a project overall uh, if our clients you know, choose to use our, our experience uh, in that manner. Yeah, I think that is an excellent point, Paul. Um, and uh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed today's topic. And if you have any questions for Paul regarding IE services or have any questions for uh, or suggestions for future topics, uh, please reach out to us at e3co at e3co.com. And thanks for listening today. Yep. Thanks, Ginger.